in this passage is Paul is talking to us about how our relationships, our interpersonal relationships, should be shaped by the gospel. So he's going to talk to us about wives and husbands, he's going to talk to us about children and parents, and he's going to talk to us about even our employer-employee relationships. Uh, all of those things are going to be shaped by the gospel. So Ephesians 5, to 6, 9, this is God's word for us this morning. It says this, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. This is God's word for us. This morning, let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. Lord, we pray this morning for understanding. Lord, we pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to us and we pray that you would shape our hearts and that you would shape our minds and that you would shape our wills so that we love and choose and understand rightly. 
in a way that brings you glory and is for our good. In Christ's name we pray all of these things. Amen. the entire book of Ephesians, we have summarized several times as really being about life in the beloved community. Life in this community of all different kinds of people from all different kinds of places that God has gathered together. And in many cases, the only things they have in common is Jesus. This community is the church and it's God's plan to show what kind of God he is to the world. And what the book of Ephesians has done is it has gone from the biggest angle lens of theology and it is now narrowing down farther and farther and farther and helping us understand how what God has done in Jesus shapes everything. God's grace changes everything. And today he is going to show us how God's grace shapes some of the deepest and most personal relationships that each of us have in our lives, our marriages, our relationship to our children and our parents, and our relationships that we have in our work. So we're going to start, we're going to spend probably half of the sermon thinking about marriage, and then we'll look briefly at children uh, and employer-employee relationships, but there's a lot here about marriage. So let's think about what, what is Paul saying to husbands and to wives. Wives come first uh, in Paul's letter, and he says it in verses 22 to 24. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. What does this mean? Why are you all cringing? Few things, few thoughts on what Paul is calling women to do here, wives to do here. The first thing it's important to note is that Paul says that women should, or wives should submit to their husbands, not that they should obey their husbands. An important distinction. Later on, he says children should obey their parents, servants should obey their masters, wives are not called to obey their husbands, they are called to submit to their husbands. Ultimately, Paul says, they submit to their husbands in the same way that they submit to Christ. The ultimate person to whom every Christian submits is Christ himself. And so when Paul talks about submission here, I believe what Paul is talking about is that he is calling wives to have a posture of honor and respect for their husbands. Wives are called to honor and to respect and to follow their husbands in the same way that the church is meant to honor and respect and to follow Christ. I feel like this passage has been very often misunderstood, has been very often twisted, and it ends up being something like, maybe you've heard this before, uh, that what this really means when we think about the marriage relationship that Paul is trying to encourage is that this means that the husband has the tie-breaking vote. 
Has anyone heard this before? At least two of you have. Colton, Colton has. Thank you for being honest, Colton. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I'll tell you why about a little bit more in a minute. I also don't think what Paul is saying is that wives have no voice and no agency in their marriages. I don't think that's the case at all. Paul is not saying that wives are meant to be passive and husbands are meant to be active and the wife's responsibility is just to do whatever the husband wants. There are false teachers in the church and, and one of the things that they do often is they take passages like this that have gray in them, that have nuance in them, that call for wisdom, and they make them black and white. Some of these are very popular even in our circles. Guys like Doug Wilson, steer clear. <laughs> Guys like Doug Wilson want to say, women shouldn't even vote differently than their husbands. That the man should sit down with his wife and tell her how to vote. And that is partially what it means for the wives to submit to their husbands and friends. I'm telling you, that is wrong. That is not what Paul is saying here. Wives are not called to lose their agency, to lose their responsibility, to lose their voice in a marriage. And we know this because the rest of the Bible is in play as well. And the Bible throughout commends the wisdom of wives that clearly are exercising voices and clearly exercising agency and responsibility in their marriages in ways that sometimes even seem to counterman what their husbands want. Think of the story of Abigail in the Old Testament. Her husband's name was Nabal. And maybe he was set up wrong from birth because his name meant fool. But Nabal was a fool, believe it or not. Uh, and when he did something foolish that was going to get him and his whole household killed, Abigail fixed it. And she did it by ignoring what he said to do. Abigail is held up to us in the Old Testament as an image of virtue and wisdom. In a wife, she honored her husband there by not doing the sinful thing he said to do. She honored him by doing what the Lord would have her do. Ultimate submission for everyone is to Christ first and then to these relationships that God has established. So that's the first thing we see here. When Paul says to submit, he does not mean to obey blindly. Second thing I think we see here in Paul's instructions to wives, or at least that we need to underline, is that submission is to your own husband, not to men in general. Submission in the marriage relationship is between wife and husband, not between women in general and men in general. And maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking and you want to say back to me, like, you don't even know how bad my husband is. And, and what I'll say to this is God does. God understands how bad your husband is and God sympathizes with you because God, in fact, is in the longest bad marriage in history. 
Because God is married to his people and we keep wandering off. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. God understands what it's like to submit and to be in a relationship with somebody that is not ideal. You're called to submit, not to men in general, but to your own husband. And the final thought here on what Paul is calling women to do is I just want to acknowledge that this passage has been twisted and misinterpreted as a way of telling women that they need to remain in abusive relationships and that they are called to submit to abuse, that they are called to submit to mistreatment in a way that uh, violates the very dignity of the fact that they are made in God's image. And I'm here to say that is not what Paul is saying. Submission does not mean blind obedience, and it is not a blank check for someone to abuse you or to harm you emotionally, spiritually, physically. Those things are not okay. This passage is not calling you to put yourself in harm's way. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's what Paul is saying here. Husbands, it's your turn. Look at what Paul says, verses 25 to 27. He says, love your wives. Love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he could cleanse her and present her to himself in splendor and holiness without blemish. He goes on to say in verses 28 to 31 that husbands should love their wives like they love their own bodies, which means they should nourish their wives and they should cherish their wives because nobody hates their own body. Love your wives like Christ loved the church. Love your wife like she is your own body. Two things here I think we can clarify about what Paul is saying to husbands. One, Think about how Christ loved the church. Christ loves the church with self-sacrificing generosity. Jesus didn't give some of himself for the church. Jesus didn't give some of his resources to make things a little better for the church. Jesus gave all of himself. He gave not of himself, he gave his very self. He died for the church. Jesus died for the church. Husbands, you are called to love your wives like Christ loved the church. And listen, so many of you are are ready to say like, man, I'll take a bullet for my wife. And I think we all feel that, and, and that is great. Part of what this is calling you to is to take a bullet for your wife. But it's not just calling you to big things. It's calling you sometimes to the much harder small things. Are you willing to die by doing the dishes? (laughs) It's the worst way to die possible. Are you willing to die by taking out the trash? No. We're having a revival today. This is great. (laughs) Friends, we are called to die. Husbands, you are called 
to die. Not just in big things, but especially in small things. Again, think about Jesus. One of the things that is one of the most beautiful passages in the entire New Testament is in Philippians 2. We get this image of Jesus, and it's Jesus who is in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And in the Greek, grasped means like clung to. Jesus did not insist on his rights as God, but made himself nothing emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, and dying the most shameful death possible. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Don't insist on your rights. Actively seek to die for your wife. One author put it this way, he said, living is the same thing as dying and living well is the same thing as dying for others. Friends, live well, die for others. Husbands, love your wives. So it's not just about this self-sacrificing generosity. The second thing I want to say to husbands is that you are called to love your wife for her own good. For her good. That should motivate you. Look at how it says it in several places throughout this passage. It talks about how Jesus gave himself to purify the church for himself. That she would be holy and without blemish and presented in splendor. So part of what Jesus is doing is for the good of the church. He is making us beautiful. He is making us what we were made to be. Husbands, you are called to help your wives be what they were made to be. And back to the image of loving our wives as if we love our own bodies. He says you're supposed to nourish and cherish your body. You are supposed to nourish and cherish your wife. To nourish is to give her what she needs and to cherish is to like her. To delight in her, not just to get things from her, but to give to her, to love her, to like her, to delight in her. Being married to you should be life-giving for your wife. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Let me give just a few brief observations on marriage more generally uh, while we are here in this passage. The first thing is a joke. Why does the groom wear black and the bride wear white at a wedding? Do you know? Because it is her wedding and his funeral. You're all laughing. That is theologically true. That is the most profound theological joke I have, and if you ever do premarital counseling with me, you will hear it. (laughs) Because God is calling husbands to go and die. You wear black because it's your funeral, and it's going to be the best of the two funerals that you have. I promise you that. So that was the first thing. Here's the second thing. 
Marriage is more for God to make you holy than it is for God to make you happy. Marriage is more about holiness than it is about happiness. And by that, I don't mean that it's about unhappiness, but that if we think of happiness as ease and comfort and unconditional affirmation, that is not what marriage is. If you want unconditional affirmation, I would highly recommend buying a golden retriever. They are great at that. I have one at home. She only affirms me. It is wonderful. But marriage is not meant to be easy. Marriage is not meant to be simple. Marriage is meant to be a place where you are learning and understanding and growing in the gospel. It is a place where Christ is being formed in you, the hope of glory. Marriage is ground zero for your sanctification as long as you are married. It's about your holiness, not about making you feel happy. Here's the third uh, general comment. Uh, This is a quote as well from a theologian. He says this, you always marry the wrong person. You always marry the wrong person, which is why the focus of the Christian life is on becoming the right kind of person. This is beautiful and profound. Because friends, when hardship comes in your relationship, when hardship comes in your marriage, it is so easy for your brain to wander off and think, I wonder if I just married the wrong person, and if I had married the right person, everything would be simple. And friends, that is functionally just the prosperity gospel. If I pick the right thing, everything goes great. That is not the point. You will always marry another sinner. That is a 100% guarantee. It's on the back of the box when you get married. You have married a sinner, and that means you have married the wrong person. And because of that, the focus is not on trying to find the right person, but on learning that your marriage is a place where where you will grow and become more and more like Christ. And so when you look at a passage like this one that we're looking at this morning, I think my advice to you is to stay in your lane. Husbands, assume it takes more grace for your wife to live with you than it does for you to live with your wife. Wives, assume the same thing. It takes more grace for your husband to live with you than for you to live with your husband. Husbands in general should not be in a position of calling their wives to submit, just like wives should not be in a position of calling their husbands to die. Each should be in their own lane, growing in the gospel as it is convicting them and calling them to repent and grow and change. Assume you're the one that needs work because you know that you were the wrong person for your spouse to marry just as much as they were the wrong person for you to marry. Focus on your own sin. Here's my final uh, marriage point. 
Uh, there is a verse in the New Testament that is not explicitly about marriage that I think captures the dynamic of what Paul is getting at here in a beautiful way, and I quote it all the time when I do marriage counseling with people, and it comes from Romans chapter 12, verse 10, and here's what Paul says to the Roman church, but what I'm saying to you as married couples, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. I think the picture of what Paul is painting here in these marriage relationships in the church is of two people who are falling all over themselves to yield to one another, to please one another, to delight in one another, that they have this relationship of love and trust and delight. And friends, this is the exact opposite of a marriage that is built on compromise, Do you see that? This is not about two people each clawing their way, trying to get as much as they can and yield as little as they can and trying to get their preferences met. The picture that Paul is painting is that wives are seeking ways to follow and honor their husbands and that their husbands are seeking ways to die to themselves and their own preferences. This is not compromise. This isn't a marriage that becomes an arrangement. This is a picture of the gospel itself. I remember doing premarital counseling one time with a couple, and it was sort of like, a, like an odd couple situation or um, opposites attract maybe, uh, because uh, the, the, uh, the bride loved animals, wanted like a house full of animals, and not like normal animals either. It's like hedgehogs and chinchillas, and just random stuff is going to be living in this house. And the husband, the groom, hated animals. To be fair, he thought they were delicious, but he did not care for the initial stages of their lives. So throughout premarital counseling, the question became like, what are we going to do here? And she's like, well, maybe I can just have a few animals. And he's like, maybe you can have no animals. And like, they're trying to decide if like, and, 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 and part of what we did is it's like, listen, Dude, your job is to die. Here's your first chance to practice. Die to yourself. Welcome all of Noah's Ark into your house. And then I look at her and I say, listen, your your job is to, to follow and honor and respect him. You should be delighted to have no animals. And if that is where you're starting, it is so much easier to find a solution than if you're each clawing to get what you want. This is how our marriages look like the gospel. Two people pursuing the best of one another. I think maybe the most beautiful picture of this in recent memory came from a man named Robertson McQuilkin. He was the president of Columbia International University. And he had been in that role for, I believe, 25 or 30 years. He was a man in his 60s, uh, academically still had a lot to give. He was kind of at the peak of his career and of his influence. And his wife had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And she was declining rapidly. And so, at the height of his career, at the height of his influence, he resigned. Listen to what he said in his resignation speech to the university. 
His wife's name was Muriel. He said, Muriel seems to be almost happy when she's with me. And she's almost never happy when she's not with me. She seems to feel trapped. She becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terrified. And when she can't get to me, there's anger. She's in distress. I promised in our wedding that I would be with her in sickness and in health till death do us part. And I'm a man of my word. This was no grim duty to which I stoically resigned, however. It was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion. Now it was my turn. And such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. It's not that I have to do this. It's that I get to. Friends, Paul says in verse 32 that marriages built, like he's describing, are a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. Robertson McQuilkin just gave a master class in a marriage that looks like gospel. When marriages are lived like this, they sing. They proclaim the glories of the one who gave himself to rescue a people out of sin and death and to make them perfect in holiness for eternity. It's a picture of the gospel. That's what Paul is calling our marriages to be and to become. Let's move over to parents and children. In verse 1 of chapter 6, in verses 1 to 3, Paul gives instruction to children, some of which I've already offered to the children here. He says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And what he is saying there is that for children, obeying their parents is what it looks like for them to obey God. So there's not much qualification given there. Uh, as we talked about during the children's sermon, kids are called to obey what your parents ask you to do. You're to do it cheerfully and promptly and to do it um, as if you are obeying God himself. It's a really big responsibility that God has given. But Paul does not let parents off the hook. This is not just for children. He says in verse Four, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says something similar to fathers. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Part of what Paul is saying here is that fathers, as you parent your children... Do not provoke them with unreasonable requests or with extreme or unreasonable discipline. Don't be the father that gets mad on December 21st and says, that's it, Christmas is canceled, and takes the tree out into the front yard. Don't be that dad. 
Don't be the dad who in the middle of an exhausting time demands prompt and perfect obedience in a way that is unreasonable. What Paul is saying here when he says that you should raise your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord is that the gospel shapes your parenting. The gospel should shape your parenting, which means your parenting should be built upon grace. Grace. That means, for instance, that you discipline your children, but you don't punish your children. And there is a huge difference. Our our Heavenly Father does not punish us when we experience the consequences of our sin, even the natural consequences of our sin. He is disciplining us, which means He is shaping us and helping us to grow. It is for our good. It's not like we're being sentenced for a crime we committed. Because God poured out all of the punishment for our sin on Jesus. Therefore, We are only disciplined in Christ. We are never punished. Parents, fathers, discipline your children. Don't punish them. And as you discipline your children, focus your discipline on issues of sin. Annoying you is not a sin. I've looked everywhere in the Bible. Twice. It is not in there. Your kids annoying you is not something for which you need to discipline them. Discipline your kids for their hearts. Discipline them for their sin. The third commandment is striking to me in this regard. Because the third commandment says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Every time your kids hear that God is their father, you are what they're going to think of, fathers. Every time your kids hear that God is their heavenly father, the only father they know is the father they have, which is you. What do your kids know of their heavenly father? by the way that you parent. Is their Heavenly Father harsh and demanding? Is their Heavenly Father aloof? Is their Heavenly Father violently angry? Is their Heavenly Father just sort of vaguely disappointed in them? He is not. Friends, their Heavenly Father loves them. And he likes them. And he delights in them. And he is not too distracted or too busy or too important to care for them and to hear their stories and to hear what they've done. He is engaged and warm and welcoming. And so the bad news for fathers is that to the extent you fall short of that, You have not only sinned against your children, but you've sinned against God. But the good news for fathers in the midst of that, because we all do that, is that God invites us to repent when we fall short. 
And not just to repent to him, but to repent to our children. Repent to your children. Eugene Peterson has a parenting book uh, where he says that parenting is really just inviting your kids to look over your shoulder at your own sanctification, at your own growth in grace. And I think that's beautiful and I think that is true. We need to repent to our kids when we make mistakes because they need to see that that's what it means to follow Jesus. We don't get perfect when we turn 20. We have to keep walking in faith and repentance and obedience over and over and over again. And what's amazing is that psychologists have done research. And what they found is that the kids that have the best outcomes in life were not the ones that had parents that made the fewest mistakes. The kids with the best outcomes in life had parents who acknowledged their mistakes. Friends, psychology vindicates again the Christian gospel. The only thing better than a perfect parent is a humble parent and a repentant parent. And if you like that and you want more of where that came from, there is a book on the book table called Setting Parents Free by Dr. John Cox. Take and read. It is a wonderful, wonderful book for parenting. All right, I'm going slow. Uh, here's, my, here's the third point, thinking about employers and employees. Uh, Paul says in verse 5, uh, he's talking about bond servants and masters. Uh, bond servants in the ancient world were people that basically signed a seven-year labor contract in ancient Rome. Uh, and if you were in Caesar's household, it was a 14-year labor contract. But a seven-year labor contract meant you functionally became a part of this person's household. And you worked for them and you uh, did all kinds of things that were part of the arrangement. And then at the end of that time, you were paid for your labor. You were released from their household. Uh, and you had a certificate that declared you to be free. So it's important just to acknowledge this is not a slave and master kind of relationship like you would have had in the American South. This is more a relationship of employer and employee in the ancient world, although I think we should acknowledge, and I feel like I need to acknowledge, that in the history of the church in the United States, this passage was abused over and over and over again to tell people that had been kidnapped and forced into slavery that they should obey their masters in a way that was contrary to the gospel. Uh, Paul elsewhere says uh, in 1 Corinthians 7 that becoming a Christian doesn't mean you need to change everything about your life. And then he makes this little aside. He says, unless you're a slave and can become free, then do that. Paul is not saying here, he's not baptizing some kind of slavery like was in the American South. It was a very different arrangement in the ancient world. But what he says in verses 5 to 8 is that bond servants should serve their master, should serve their employers with fear and trembling, which again just means respect. They should respect those employers that they have, and they should do it sincerely. They should work sincerely in the same way that they serve Christ. In other words, they should not just do the bare minimum, but they should seek to do the will of God from the heart, working with goodwill, serving God, not men. And then, he says, for whatever you have done, you will receive as a reward. 
from God. And I think the takeaway for us in our work relationships is just simply to note that how we work matters to God. How we do things matters to God in our work. We are called in our work to recognize that we are ultimately serving God and not just serving the companies or the bosses that we work for. Uh, Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15 that in Christ our labor is not in vain. God sees it and he accepts our work, even if it's menial and boring and awful, he accepts that as work done for him. It's not just religious work that matters. Your work matters to God. There's not sacred work and secular work. There is just work that God has given his people to do, and he is delighted to receive their work as worship. Uh, when I worked uh, at UPS in seminary, I was loading trailers uh, on the night shift, uh, and I hated that job. It was terrible. It was hard. My boss was, he was mean to me. Um, he yelled at me a lot. He yelled at everybody a lot, so it wasn't just me. Uh, it was just, it was really hard. And there was like one rule at this facility where I worked, and that was don't ride the conveyor belts. It was like a big deal at UPS, like do not ride the conveyor belts. And I used to fantasize during my entire shift about what it would be like to just hop up on the conveyor belt and ride it to the edge of the building and then jump off at the door and give a salute and walk out. That is not the posture that Paul is calling us to here. That was sinful. It was sinful. And it's funny because, I mean, it's, it's, for one, it's true, but I, I realize now that I lacked the proper gospel posture towards my work. We are called, no matter what our work is, to serve the Lord through it, to do it well, to do it heartily, to do it sincerely with goodwill. We are called to serve God in our work. All right, so we've gotten to the end of this. Oh, we haven't. Masters. Masters are called to do the same thing, to work well, to stop threatening. In other words, to stop being like, if you don't do this, you're going to get fired or you're going to be beaten, which would have been a thing in the ancient world. And Paul reminds them that God is not impressed with their resume. God is not impressed with their status. He's not impressed with their position or their influence. He reminds them at the very end, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. Pretty deep. There is no partiality. God is not impressed with position. All right. So we've read this passage, we've looked at, at, at husbands and wives and children and parents, bond servants and masters, and honestly, like we read it at the beginning and I could feel y'all kind of cringe, I could feel y'all kind of tighten up, we're thinking about submission and obedience and like is Paul talking about slavery and like what are we doing with all this stuff? And what we have to realize is this was revolutionary in the ancient world. This was a complete subversion of the way that the world worked. In the ancient world, if you were in a position of authority over somebody, you could do whatever you wanted to to that person. Husbands could do whatever they wanted to their wives. Fathers could kill their children 
with impunity. Masters had absolute rights over those in their employ, those in their household. And so what's amazing is not that Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. Everyone would have read that and been like, okay. What's amazing is Paul spends so much more ink restraining the power of people and authority. It's amazing. Husbands, you do not have power over your wives. Husbands, go and die for your wives. Fathers, treat your kids like God treats you. Masters, remember, your servant's true master is in heaven, and that master is your master as well. There is no partiality with him. It was a radical change from what the world was like. But there's one more thing I want to mention here, one more thing that I think we have to get if we want to understand the heart of this passage, and it's simply this. These passages are not about techniques to make your marriage better or techniques to fix your parenting or how to treat your employees so that they will respect you and productivity will rise. These passages are about transformation. They're about heart posture. Paul is saying not just do these things, but Paul is saying become this kind of person. But how do we do that? How do we become a person like this? Friends, we have to realize that in this regard, there is nobody that condemns us more than Christ. Christ is the ideal husband who loves his wife perfectly, who gives not of his resources, but gives his very self to rescue and sustain and nourish and cherish his bride. Jesus was also the true son who woke up every day delighting to do the will of his heavenly father. He even submitted himself to the authority of Mary and Joseph. Jesus fulfilled these commands perfectly. And Jesus died the shameful death of a servant, though he was in the very form of God. Friends, next to Jesus, we have no hope. Jesus looks at us and he says, I did it. And we look at him and we're like, we are not doing this. We are failing day in and day out, every five minutes, every two minutes. In thought, word, and deed, we are blowing these instructions. No one condemns us like Christ in his holiness. But no one loves us like Christ in his humility. Jesus does not merely show us our need for a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. He rescues us from sin and death, again, not by giving of his resources, but by giving his very self. He took the form of a servant and died the shameful death on the cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him. He is shaping this posture in us. And he is bearing with us as we fail again and again and again. We are being disciplined, 
not punished as we grow in these things because our Heavenly Father loves us and delights in us as we see most fully in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that everything you require of us, you provide to us in Christ. Father, we pray that you would use your word and by your spirit convict us of our sin and our shortcomings and our failures. And Father, help us not to stay there, but show us these things and give us the grace of repentance that we might turn from them and turn towards Christ again and again in faith and then strive for new obedience. Father, be at work in us. Shape us individually and together into a beloved community that bears witness to the glory of the gospel. Father, even now as we come to your table, we pray that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in Christ. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Friends, here at the table, we are reminded of how Christ